You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my um, stupendous partners, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. I love being stupendous. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean exactly? And uh, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. The not stupendous one. No, absolutely stupendous. No, I said stupendous partners. Oh, okay. We're both stupendous. Okay, yes. good. I'm, I'm I'm glad about that. That was all inclusive. <laughs> um, how are you guys doing this weekend? We're doing good. My house is a little busier than normal. Yeah. What's going on? We got a new puppy. Oh, <laughs> cute. What kind? She is a Cavachon. So she's half Cavalier King Charles Spaniel and half Bichon Frise. Oh, wow. Oh, is she fuzzy or is yeah, she? Yeah, I was going to say, is she fluffy? Is she fluffy or is she more like? The Spaniel. She is more cavalier with her, her hair like doesn't shed. So yay, Bichon jeans. Nice. Yeah. But she has, her hair is straight and it's, she's a black and white Aww. cabochon, which is actually pretty rare. Like most of them are kind of this apricot color. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, we, we named her Stella in honor of the movie Cruella. <laughs> and she is, she is just the sweetest. We have an, we have another dog um, that is a miniature schnauzer and her name is Sage and Sage and Stella are getting along really well, but Stella is, will never be an alpha dog. I can tell you this. It's so hilarious. Like Sage growled at her one time and she literally did a full body plant with like all four (laughs) paws, like flat on the ground, acting like she was dead. I was like, it's like those little baby goats that like tip over and pretend that they're dead. We were, we just died laughing and she's, she's very Zen. I've never had a Zen puppy. This is a Zen puppy. And then she all of a sudden has like this energy. But most of the time, I mean, I had her on my lap last night, upside down, like belly up. And she fell asleep that way. Oh, that's adorable. And we've only had her for three days. I mean, she's like so comfortable, which, you know, makes makes me feel good. So she's not up all night barking, trying to get out of her cage. No, we got her from um, this place up in Washington state and uh, they had what they called their accelerated puppy program. So they kept her for an extra four weeks and kind of helped get her initially crate trained, started potty training, stuff like that. So that's great. She still has, you know, her moments and she's, she's definitely still working on potty training. We are, you know, walking around cleaning up little accidents and running her outside, you know, every hour or two and that type of thing. But she's really doing pretty good. They, they do. It's funny. They litter box train them um, because their bladders are so tiny that when they're little bitty and they're immature, like you really can't just can't physically hold it. They, they physically can't hold it. And so, and unless you're, you know, have no job, nothing else going on in your life, you like, you, you can't do it. And so oh, the idea is idea. you use the litter box as a help. And then as they get older, you, 
you know, get them so that they don't need that. But it, it seems to be working pretty well for us, but um, she's just the sweetest thing ever. And we're so excited to have her. So cool. That's awesome. What'd you do this weekend, Abby? So I went down the Ocoee River, which is a river that originates kind of in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. It goes through Eastern Tennessee, Southeastern Tennessee, um, kind of just north of Chattanooga. And so it's about two and a half hours from where I live. And so it's always fun to make a journey over to the Ocoee. And the Ocoee was also known back in the 96 Olympics. So when it was in Atlanta, the Olympic whitewater rafting course was on the Ocoee. And so we, so that's the upper Ocoee. And then there's the lower Ocoee. It takes about two and a half hours to do each part. The upper Ocoee has class four rapids. And we did those class four rapids yesterday. It was, it was pretty, pretty intense, but Fortunately, if you have a really great guide that knows how to maneuver, I mean, he literally, our guide knew every rock in the whole river and which way the current was going in everyone and how you prevent flipping over. And, but he said also, if he wanted to flip us over, he knew how to make us flip over. And, and a couple of times we surfed, which is where you kind of go over a rapid and then you turn and the water just starts coming into your boat, cool you know, you and you're like, yeah. And at first it was really scary, but, but in the boat just immediately gets filled with water. But the really cool thing is the way the boat's designed almost instantaneously. When you come out of that, the water comes completely out of the boat because of the little valves in the bottom of the boat or not valves, just really holes in the bottom of the boat that allow the water to come out. So neat. That's cool. It was fun. We had a great time, but I'm kind of sore this morning from all the heavy duty paddling. That I did. <laughs> All the bouncing around. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of bouncing around. It was fun. What did you do this weekend, Carrie? We had some friends over for dinner last night. And so my husband and I cooked. My husband has gotten uh over over the course of the pandemic, he because I I worked all the way through it and his schedule got much more abbreviated and he wasn't in the hospital quite as much. He has gotten to be a really phenomenal cook, especially on the grill. Wow. And so he grilled halibut and I made lemon risotto, you know, some vegetables. And then I made a, a pear crumble afterwards. And Okay, was- so I, I got to stop you here. Okay, as, as somebody who loves halibut, how, does he grill it like in foil? No, I think he just put it straight, straight on. How does it not fall, off, fall apart? Well, so he took the skin off. And he, I think he just put it on. I don't think he has a special, because there were, there were grill marks on it. Interesting. I didn't see any foil in there. Like they were, they were good sized halibut steaks and they held together really pretty well. Like Hmm. we had, we had made um, a lemon basil vinaigrette for it. And, and so he had put some of that on beforehand and then he just put it on for like, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or so. And it held together really nicely. I mean, it was a good halibut steak that was really delicious. Very cool. Yeah. Like this whole husband cooking grilling thing. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah. All right. Well, we're going to do a question episode today because we have many questions building up and we um, wanted to make sure that they all got answered in a a semi-timely manner here. So Susan, what's our first question for today? All right. Our first question today is, I stopped birth control nine months ago and haven't had a period since. I am currently seeing a reproductive endocrinologist to attempt ovulation induction. The baseline ultrasound revealed polycystic ovaries, more than 20 follicles per ovary. However, given my history of an eating disorder, lower BMI, and exercise routine running some degree of hypothalamic amenorrhea is suspected. Yep. <laughs> we've, we've all seen this person. Yes. Um, 
I am trying to balance the conflicting advice of one, exercising and avoiding excess simple carbohydrates for PCOS with two, gaining some weight and cutting down on exercise to resolve the hypothalamic issues. How do you advise women with combined HA and PCO? Oh, I love this question. That's a phenomenal question. Go for it, Happy. I always tell my residents that you have to be really careful when somebody comes to see you and their bill is, this is a person with PCOS that doesn't respond to Clomid. You first want to look at them. And if they're of normal body weight, and sometimes even if they're not of normal body weight, you still want to question that diagnosis. Because if you're a young, healthy person, if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, in my experience, and I'm not really seeing this written down anywhere, you have a ton of eggs in your ovaries. And it looks like, it looks for all the world, I mean, it qualifies as a PCOS appearing ovary, but if you've got a really thin endometrial lining, like for example, if, if you had an ultrasound right now and you hadn't had a period in nine months and your endometrial lining is really thin, you know, if you have a ton of follicles on your ovaries and your lining's thin, in my mind, you've got hypothalamic amenorrhea. You don't have PCOS. I, to me, I think it's hard to say that both of those happen at the same time. And so for those patients, which we all know, typically they don't respond to the normal ovulation induction oral medicines like Clomid and Femara just because of the physiology of the condition. Those patients, however, respond really well to injectable FSH because essentially it's just your brain is not talking to your ovary. It's not telling your ovary what to do. Your ovary has plenty of eggs. You have a great uterus but your brain's not telling your ovary what to do. And so you basically want to get more FSH in the form of an injection. And once that happens, in fact, sometimes we have to be really careful because we have the opposite problem. We have a problem where all those eggs all of a sudden wake up and start to ovulate. So we have to, as reproductive endocrinologists, we have to be really careful and only stimulate, you know, a really small amount of eggs, hopefully just one or two before, you know, you because otherwise we worry about just all of them stimulating in multiple gestation. So to me, if I had to guess, it sounds to me more like you really have hypothalamic amenorrhea and you probably need to be on injectable FSH. What do you think, Susan? So a couple of things, you know, I think it's really important, especially with the history of an eating disorder. We know that if you have a history of an eating disorder, that that's part of your physiology. And even if you have that under control, there are certain things that happen between your brain and your ovaries that may not kind of click in gear even after an eating disorder is in remission is kind of the best way for me to, to say that. Um, I do agree with Abby about that. You know, you probably are somebody who's more on the hypothalamic than PCO side. Most often when I have somebody who's hypothalamic, I tend to use Menopure um, that has a combination of... FSH and LH. Yes, I, I agree with that. I should have said that, Susan. You have to have both FSH and LH. <laughs> That's right. And in this particular circumstance, if you're that person who has 40 follicles on your ovaries, realize that we really are walking a very fine line between not recruiting anything and recruiting way too much. And, and so your stimulation, you need to be prepared that it can go on longer because we're trying to be safe and protect you and get us to where we really want to be. So we often start, start off on low dosages and we are relatively patient <laughs> um, trying to see when you're going to re respond and gradually increase doses as necessary. So when your girlfriends go and they get five days of Clomid or Letrozole, and then they come back and it's like, woohoo, we got two or three follicles and let's trigger for IUI or whatever, or time to intercourse, 
that's not necessarily going to be your picture. Your picture could go on for it may be five days, but it could be two or three weeks of us getting exactly the right dose to get those ideally one to three follicles. Because as much as we want you to have a baby, we don't want you to have a litter of babies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Low and slow is definitely the dictum. And I'll echo what you just said, Susan. I recently had somebody that had more than one baby and I, we did our absolute best to try and prevent that person. She had haplymic amenorrhea, try and prevent her from ovulating a lot of eggs. And sometimes no matter how hard you try, even toward the end, you can have a couple that we would consider mature. And then you may have a couple more that are really close. And somewhere between the time you get the last injection and your husband's sperm comes into contact with the egg, those other eggs can mature. So unfortunately, it's still the area of reproductive medicine where we don't have as much control and still it's the area where probably we have the highest number of multiple gestations, even though that number is much lower now than it used to be, it's still, we can't prevent the sperm from going into a certain number of eggs if they're there and mature. And when you look at the cost of the medications that we use, especially because these protocols do oftentimes go for an extended period of time, you end up spending really quite a bit of money on the medications. And so while on the one hand, it is cheaper to do a single cycle of injectables than it is to do an IVF cycle. Sometimes it's actually better to just do the IVF cycle because it's safer because you can go for all those eggs and do it in a manner that is going to be protective and safe and not put you at risk of having hyperstimulation syndrome or having a whole basketball team of children at the same time. Um, and, and financially, oftentimes it actually works better when you're looking at the big picture because multiples are, you know, twins, triplets or higher are very expensive pregnancies. They are riskier pregnancies. Um, they are more likely to put you at home on bed rest at some point or other. And, and you also, if you get enough embryos, you have your whole family um, and you just come back for frozen embryo transfers. And so oftentimes just for the safety information and profile alone, it's kind of helpful to go straight to IVF and people with really significant functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. One other possibility too, and this, I've had several patients who have said, well, what can I do? What, what lifestyle modifications can I make? And I, I have seen, seen some patients be successful, although more times than not, I ended up seeing those patients back six or eight months later, lifestyle modifications didn't work and they really want to be pregnant. But things that you can think about doing, and I know our, our listener asked about these, some people can decrease the amount of exercise that they do. It's hard to know kind of what, how you need to decrease your, the amount of your exercise. I usually say, you know, it's okay to exercise, but maybe four days a week instead of seven days a week. And, you know, by modifying activity, you know, if you run a seven and a half minute mile, that's a pretty fast mile. So I'd say slow down to a 10 minute mile instead of a seven minute mile. We also know that different types of activities that you do can make a difference. So we know that, that runners tend to stop menstruating at the same body mass index where swimmers are still menstruating. So we think things like swimming are less hard on the body and less likely to result in patients not having periods. And so um, so I think things like that are important. I also think you need to eat, increase your caloric intake. If you're exercising, training for a marathon, working out a bunch, you need to eat more calories. I mean, your body sort of thinks it's in starvation mode sometimes if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, whether you're truly anorexic or not. And so if your body's not getting enough calories, your body thinks now's not a t- good time for this person to be pregnant. And so therefore, your body's mechanism to prevent that is to make you stop producing those hormones that you need. So I think anything you can do to decrease your stress, increase your caloric intake, um, and basically just um, 
decrease the amount of activity you do, I think will be helpful. And sometimes that works. Very juicy question. That was a good one. I know. What's our next one, Susan? Okay. I got pregnant during my third IVF cycle, but I miscarried at eight and 15 weeks. I gained 30 pounds within an eight-week period, which the OB-GYN attributed to unhealthy lifestyle, even though I had protein in my urine, nausea, and swelling. Although the issue ended up being early preeclampsia, I'm terrified of being misdiagnosed again. I know I'm overweight, but what diets and exercises are safe during the IVF process to avoid stigma associated with being overweight and be in the best possible shape for IVF? So what was the gestational age that she miscarried? She said eight and 15 weeks. So I'm guessing she was pregnant with twins. Oh, okay. That's tough. What do you guys think? The incidence of preeclampsia essentially in late first or second trimester is, is, is it's pretty rare. Okay. I, I'm never going to say impossible because we all know that everything <laughs> we know is, nothing possible. is impossible. <laughs> exactly. But if you're an individual who essentially had the picture of preeclampsia that early, my concern is you're one of those people who's at very, very, very high risk of preeclampsia, severe preeclampsia, eclampsia during upcoming pregnancies. I mean, it, that that that's what makes me concerned about kind of this scenario. I mean, generally, if you would have taken all of that out, I have like one set of recommendations, which is, you know. Okay, so let's pretend there's no preeclampsia. We'll address that in a minute. What would you do if you, you weren't worried about the preeclampsia issue? Right. It, I mean, if I wasn't worried about the preeclampsia issue and we were just talking about what can I do to be the healthiest that I can going into pregnancy is being as having a BMI ideally less than 30 is going to be ideal following a well-balanced diet. I'm one of those people that I tend to not like you to go to extremes. Um, if you need to do something like a keto diet or something like that to get where you need to be, that's fine. Um, I'm not really excited about you being in ketosis <laughs> formally when, when you're pregnant. Yeah. And why is that Susan? Why do you worry about that? I mean, it, it, we just have poorer pregnancy outcomes when we see that. And I know there's there's some um, out there that are really promoting people trying to get pregnant while in ketosis. And I, I just, I, I'm not, I, I don't have a warm fuzzy about how safe that is at this point. Well, and I think fetal brain development too, we worry a little bit about that when people mm-hmm. are in ketosis. So I think weight loss is good, but just, I'd be careful about that for sure. Right. And, you know, making sure you're taking your prenatal vitamins, those types of things. Um, if you've had miscarriages in the past, having a workup for recurrent pregnancy loss, if this wasn't your first miscarriage, you know, those are things that we're, we're talking about as to maximizing your natural abilities to have the healthiest pregnancy you can. And if you would have had maybe preeclampsia at what I would consider a normal time, taking, you know, low dose aspirin starting in early pregnancy has some good evidence to help prevent. But if you really had a clinical picture of this kind of late onset, unusual preeclampsia type of situation, you may be an individual that might want to consider using a gestational carrier in in an upcoming pregnancy. What do you think, Abby? I think if you were my patient, I think I'd send you to a high-risk OB doctor to really kind of review your medical records and kind of look and really figure out, was this really preeclampsia or was it not? You said that you gained 30 pounds. 
but I think it sounded like you gained it after the pregnancy was over. It just said during an eight-week period, it didn't say before or after. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I think that's the first thing I would do. If it were me personally, I think I'd want a high-risk OB doctor to look at my records and really see based on the protein in my urine, based on the testing that was done, because I'm sure you know those kind of tests were done when you were in the hospital, potentially. I would try and ferret out whether that was really the case. But I'm like, Susan, that would be really early for preeclampsia. It's not unheard of, but really early for preeclampsia. And if you truly got preeclampsia that early, then that would be really scary in terms of getting pregnant again, because sometimes when it happens really early, it's more likely to reoccur really early. If the weight gain turns out not to be related to that, you know, obviously you've been through a really traumatic time. You've done three IVF cycles. You've had two pregnancies and you've lost both of them. I think anybody would be upset and sad and maybe depressed. And you didn't mention that you were, but I just, I think any normal human being would be, that would be really upsetting to go through all that. And I think sometimes counseling would help with that because sometimes people have emotional triggers for eating. And maybe, you know, if you're really honest about kind of what you were eating and how much you were eating, I think I would have you look back and kind of figure out what you were eating and kind of what alterations could be made to help you lose that weight. Because um, I don't think your doctor feels like that, or I don't think you should have a stigma thinking your doctor thinks you're too heavy or whatever. But I just think that the idea more would be, let me get healthy for pregnancy. I want to be a healthier person. That way I'll feel better in pregnancy. And actually losing weight will help decrease your chances a little bit of developing preeclampsia if in fact that's what you had. Yeah, I I definitely agree with reviewing. I mean, protein in your urine that early, like I I would probably err on the side of seeing your internal medicine physician or a kidney specialist because all of those things like 8 weeks of pregnancy, your physiology is it's different, but it's not that different. And so, you know, I worry about like, is there a nephrotic syndrome going on? Is there, do you have an innate condition that's making those, you have those symptoms, Yeah, but it's not truly preeclampsia, but it, it, it's definitely things that could increase your risk of pregnancy complications. Having, yeah. having a healthy renal system is 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 a is a huge thing for pregnancy. So yeah, kidney disease certainly can. Like I would, I would definitely err on the side of seeing seeing a kidney doc, seeing your internal medicine physician, at least getting baseline studies done. Because if you've got protein in your urine when you're not pregnant, or if you notice you've got lower lower extremity edema where there's swelling going on there. Like if you push on your shin bone and and there's an indent there, that means you've got a fair amount of edema. That means you should probably have some kidney studies done. You should probably have some heart studies done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think preeclampsia, like what you're describing does sound like preeclampsia, except for the timing. And that is well worth figuring out when you are not on hormones, when you're not going through IVF. And, And I think maybe you take this time to get to work on the nutrition, work on the exercise, but also just to see an internal medicine physician, um, you know, plus or minus a, a nephrologist, kidney doc, or a cardiologist for your heart and, and work out the kinks and figure out what's going on because working those kinks out while you are pregnant is a hell of a lot harder than when you're not pregnant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. What else you got, Susan? All right. So, hey, y'all, I love this show and I've been listening since day one, which happened to be the same time I started trying to conceive. Woohoo! Thank you. (laughs) I just turned 35 in May and we've been trying to conceive since December. My husband's semen analysis was normal. My HSG was normal and all my lab work normal. 
Fertility mentioned Clomid in a couple of cycles. If, it, if still no success, she did have some additional blood work and found that my varicella zoster IgG antibody was low. I did have chickenpox as a child and all of my vaccines. I do have a history of HSV and will get the occasional flare on my lips and sometimes the same type of flare on my buttock in a cluster, never any genital HSV flares ever. I'm aware of the transmission during pregnancy, but only if genitals are flared, right? My doctor mentioned getting the vaccine if I haven't been vaccinated, but I have been, so I prefer not to get any further vaccines after the COVID vaccine I received. Do you think that this is something to look into further, or is it safe to say I don't need to do anything else and can continue to try to conceive and watch for any HSV flares close to delivery? Any further information on this would be greatly appreciated. The stuff can get confusing and Dr. Google drives me nuts. Thanks, ladies, <laughs> and keep up the great work. All right. Well, there's a lot in here. So it sounds like, to kind of summarize this and, and to explain a little bit more, so the patient had chicken pox when she was a kid or, and or she had a vaccine for varicella zoster. So varicella zoster is chicken pox. It is a, it's part of the herpes family of virus. Um, and so it sounds like there's two separate issues that, that may be getting crossed here. So one is varicella is a version of herpes virus, but it does not cause genital or oral herpes as we think about it. It can cause shingles, which is totally different. And so my thought on the varicella part of this is your antibodies are low I would probably get a booster because chicken pox in pregnancy can lead to really horrible birth defects. Um, and, and because there is a higher and chicken pox as an adult can be lethal. True story. Adults. <laughs> okay. Like it's, it's serious. Chicken pox pneumonia. Yeah. And the kidney failure too. And encephalitis. I mean, it, chicken pox is meant as a childhood disease. And if you get it <laughs> as an adult, it can be really bad. Yeah. So I would, I would get an immune booster for the varicella because it, it can be badness for you and for your baby. That is a totally separate issue from the herpes virus. And so Abby, do you want to take on the herpes virus part of this where it sounds like she's got uh, some outbreaks occasionally on her lips and on her backside, but has never noticed a, a, an outbreak on the genital area? Yeah. I mean, generally if it's a, a flare in your vulva, we really don't want a baby's body passing past that because the baby can get a really bad, you know, infection of that. And as a newborn neonate, it can be fatal. Um, generally, we like to avoid that. And, you know, something like 25% of people, I think now have C-sections anyway. You know, I know everybody wants to have a vaginal birth. And, you know, in your situation specifically, you don't think that there's any virus or viral particles or, or um, lesions in your vulva. But, you know, honestly, it's really kind of hard to tell sometimes because that, that place is hard to look at. And so I think if I were your OBGYN, I would be concerned that maybe you have a subclinical outbreak that you may not recognize at the time of childbirth. If you have that history, if it were me as your OBGYN, I probably would lean toward doing a C-section just because bottom line is you want to have a healthy baby. And probably, you know, those lesions in your vulva probably wouldn't make a difference, but we don't really know. And it's probably not worth it, I think, to make to take that gamble for a vaginal delivery. 
So, and I think kind of, I'm assuming standard practice is what it was when we were back in residency, but usually that decision is done at the time of labor. Essentially, you get what's called a bright light exam where your doctor looks very, very closely in all the little curves and crevices to make sure that there isn't anything that might be a lesion. If there is a lesion, then you have a C-section. And if you don't, then it's usually fine. Now, if you notice that you have outbreaks, a lot of people are started on a medicine called acyclovir that you can take during the whole pregnancy that helps decrease the risk of outbreaks and viral shedding. And so that might be something to look at as well. One other point too, I was going to say, sometimes people can have asymptomatic viral shedding too, which can be concerning as well. So there are a lot of OBGYNs that will start either acyclovir or valcyclovir, you know, around 35, 36 weeks or so, just to help minimize any risk of asymptomatic shedding, meaning you're, you're releasing the viral particles, but you have no symptoms. So you have no real idea that it's there. And there's not really a test you can do. Like you can't do a viral swab to see, oh, am I shedding? One, because it's going to take a while to come back. And two, because if you don't have an active outbreak, it's really hard to know exactly where to, to swab. And so so a lot of times OBGYNs will start their patients on that med as they get closer to delivery, particularly if someone feels strongly about a vaginal delivery. Absolutely. All right. One more question, guys. Yeah, let's do one one more quick one and then and then we'll wrap it up. All right. How do you decide when to release a patient back to their regular OB-GYN? I'm currently 10 weeks pregnant after my second IUI. Once it was deemed that everything quote looked good at seven and a half weeks, my RE released me back to my regular OB-GYN. I've known other patients that saw their REs until 10 or 11 weeks. Are there standards or universal criteria that go into making that decision or is it just up to the provider's judgment? I think it's just up to the provider's judgment. When I worked at a different place, we would see patients back one time at six weeks and then we'd send them on. And that's been a while ago. Now, kind of our current practice at Nashville Fertility Center is to see patients at about six weeks and about eight weeks. And if everything looks good at that point, generally... As reproductive endocrinologists, we don't have a lot more to add to the equation. At that point, it's probably best for you to go on and see your OB doctor. And, you know, particularly if you potentially are going to have not just vomiting with pregnancy, but, a, you know, like hyperemesis. If you're somebody that, that has a lot of vomiting, it's probably best for you to get plugged in with your OBGYN and sort of have a plan of attack for that. Um, if you're going to have blood work early in pregnancy to look at genetics, it's probably best to get plugged in with them. So really, I think at about by about eight weeks, I think our usefulness has diminished and it's probably best for you to go on and get your, your new life started as a pregnant patient with your OBGYN, or at least that's our philosophy anyway. What do you do, Carrie? We keep people till that nine to 10 week mark. And, and it's kind of the same philosophy of we want to do one last check, make sure that everything's good before we send you on to your OBGYN. Because God forbid, if something happens, oftentimes we can get you in really fast if you have a miscarriage and, and the management. There's a bit more handholding available in our office. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, by the time by the time you hit 10 weeks, really, I want to see, okay, if there's a baby moving, wiggling, great out the door. Like you're, you're better served by being with your OBGYN. And, and we will oftentimes tell people like around the eight week point, make sure you call and make the appointment so that as soon as you get released from us, you transition straight in your OBGYN's care. Yeah. What we usually do is I'll, I'll see them back for their eight to nine week. And unless they've had a later miscarriage, Mm -hmm. um, that's when I'll kind of, um, send them on and realize that when we're, you're starting to get into that 10, 11, 12 week mark, that's when your 
able to do things like the NIPT test, looking for chromosome abnormalities, and you're wanting to get scheduled for your nuchal translucency test and everything like that. And and honestly, it's best not to be changing providers when you're in the middle of that type of testing. It's better for one um, physician to be managing that. And so it it tends to be a good um, kind of crossover. And, you know, I've seen people who got, you know, managed into a little bit later, but uh, there's there's no absolute guideline. And some of it, uh, like I said, my clinic, I, I'm in kind of a unique situation because I have a clinic that's 45 minutes away from my lab and I have a, another clinic that's three hours away from my lab. And especially for my folks that live far away, I tend to release them perhaps a little bit earlier just because I know they don't want to be driving back and forth to see me more than they absolutely need to. Right, I'm yeah. not going to compromise their care in any way but if them having perhaps one less ultrasound and having instructions and you know having a little bit of a crossover between me and their their other OB/GYN, you know, I, I'm going to lean on the side of letting you go a little bit earlier um, to save you that drive. All right. Well, those are some fabulous questions today. And of course, as always, we're not a substitute for your your regular doc. Um, <laughs> and we don't have all the information. And so for sure, follow up uh, with your regular physician for um, for any of these questions that we've answered. These are just kind of our thoughts. And, and to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to leave us a review in iTunes. Um, we always appreciate it. And we love hearing from you. You can also visit us at fertility.suncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us, or if you have specific questions, because we love love to hear those questions and love to hear ideas for the show as well. Um, don't hold back. Um, the more embarrassing with your questions, the better. <laughs> All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone.